0: right let's get rolling tonight this is a a return to of course the Sermon on the Mount this is a a step backwards in in the chronology of the this chapter Uh, we haven't left five yet everything we've done has been in Matthew 5 though the Sermon on the Mount incorporates 5 6 and 7 which lets you know we're going to be here a while I think um, because we keep finding a way to not get out of chapter 5 I'm not really really not doing that on purpose I just each week try to land where I my heart stays where I'm the most excited, where, where I've wrestled something out. And the word I heard all week long in my spirit was mercy, mercy, mercy. Part of the reason I kept hearing that word is I'm working on a new book on Jonah, using Jonah really as a vehicle to talk about a lot of things, uh, particularly the greater than Jonah, Jesus, and the parallel stories of Jonah, because there's several in the Bible that actually um, some even redeem Jonah's story. But one of the great themes of Jonah is mercy. Uh, Mercy in multiple layers. Because sometimes we think of mercy, we think only of not getting what we deserve. It's kind of the classic definition of mercy. As we go, grace is uh, is God giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. It's not a terrible definition. Um, It's a little shallow. There's a lot more to God's mercy than you not getting what you deserve. Because if that be the case, then mercy could only be derived when you've done something wrong. Um, and mercy is much greater than that. In fact, the biblical definition of mercy, um, from the Hebrew word hesed, is goodness. Really, I mean, it's God just being good. It's when we say we have a good God, we, we're saying we have a merciful God. He is good to us, um, and it's deeper than just good as well. It's kind of like trying to define salvation. Well, it's hard to do in one word. It's, it's hard to do in one sentence. It's a little bit hard to do that with mercy that um, this quality of who God is. And so when the Bible mentions has said mercy for the first time by name in the English, it's not um, God don't kill me and I deserve it. It's thank you for being good to me. Would you keep being good to me? It's Lot who actually says it first in Genesis when he's praying about when God comes to visit Sodom and and basically lots on his way out of town. God said, pick up your family and leave because there's fire and brimstone coming. And lot says, you've been so good to me to give me a way out. Will you be good to me and show me where to go? And so once again, it's not someone saying, Oh, I deserve to die. Please don't kill me. And then that's mercy, but rather it's, wow, you're good. And I'm trusting you're going to keep being good. Well, here's the news flash. God is good and you can trust that God is going to keep being good because if God is merciful, then God is good. And if God is merciful, then God will always be merciful. And he's not running thin on it with you and with me. So that's part of the, the idea. When it, That's part of why mercy wouldn't get out of my head because Jonah is a book full of mercy. I don't want to stand here and preach the Jonah story, but um, the mariners are merciful to Jonah. They try to save Jonah before they... They really try to save Jonah before they throw him overboard. The mariners show more mercy to Jonah than Jonah's willing for God to show to Nineveh. Sometimes mercy is found in those unexpected places. Uh, God's mercy in chasing Jonah down with a whale when he doesn't have to. And he does because God is good. Sometimes mercy looks like God chasing you because mercy comes in all different shapes and sizes. But it's the goodness of God hunting us down. Uh, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life said the psalmist and I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Hebrew, Hebrew word for follow me. Track you like a hunter. Track you like a almost like bird dog you. Surely goodness and mercy shall hunt me down all the days of my life. That's a pretty powerful image that I can run, but I cannot hide. God's goodness is on the prowl, and I am the prey. God's goodness is chasing me down. I serve a good, good God, and it looks like all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, what we know is the mercy of God. Um, I know we haven't read any text tonight. You know the, you know the text. Uh, we'll get to it in a moment the, from the Beatitudes. I want to try to tell you what, I, what I'm thinking as I work through a lot of different spots tonight. Um, I'm just trying to connect dots for me and for you. You see, we're, we're all students of the Bible. We're all at different levels and different places in our study, but we're perpetually students of the Bible. I hope you're reading your word frequently. I don't hope so because it'll make you a better Christian or you'll get to heaven. Um, I hope you're reading it because you've fallen in love with the Jesus you see there, and you'd like to see some more. I hope you're reading it because you like to wrestle with big ideas, things that are a little beyond you. You like to stretch your thinking a bit. The Bible will do all of that. Um, I hope that you're not reading to solve everything, because if you are, you're probably getting pretty disappointed with your Bible study, because the Bible isn't solving all of your issues. So what I'm really just trying to do, and tonight's gonna be a really good example of it, is give you a bunch of ideas from the Bible, Old and New Testament, about this topic, mercy. Show you what the Bible tries to tell about it in different ways. In this first five minutes, I've already given you three, four, five, six little stories. We won't turn to those, we'll turn to some more. And what we try to do in that is connect the dots of mercy across time. Not so you can leave tonight and go, well, I got this mercy thing figured out. Really, I hope, and I didn't know how to articulate this for a long time, but this is kind of where I stand. Um, I I don't hope you leave and go, I got this mercy thing figured out. I actually hope you leave with the idea that I'd like to know more about this mercy thing. I got a little bit tonight. I figured maybe one thing out, but you know, I got questions now that I didn't even know to ask when we got started. And to me, that's what this is about. Um, That's what I'm trying to do. Let me tell you what I'm not trying to do. I am not trying to plug holes on the sinking ship of your faith and that's what we've spent too much time doing in bible study is we try to find where things are leaking and we just spend all of our time sticking gum and silly putty on it hopefully we can get you through to another week or another revelation or another revival or the next sunday school quarter and we just keep working on patching all the leaks forget it the, the ship of your faith is in the hands of a very capable captain. If you have leaks, he is perfectly capable of, if the one who walks on water rides in your boat, he's perfectly capable of keeping your boat afloat. So I'm not going to try to solve. We're not doing that every week, trying to plug the gaps and fix all the issues. In fact, Um, don't leave with all the answers. You never will, but leave with a few questions. You're in good shape. So when we move around tonight and we will, and they surface, embrace them. All right. Go wrestle with them and remember that God is good and that's what mercy is all about. And then from there, you'll have some good things to, to discuss with the Holy Spirit on your time together. We start in the middle of the Beatitudes in Matthew five, seven, very simple text with a whole lot of punch. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Pretty simple. Falls pretty much right there in the middle of the Beatitudes. And remember the Beatitudes, it's not the attitude that you're trying to be. (laughs) Um, It's much better than that. Uh, And the phrase blessed has very few parallels in the English. Um, Probably a whole lot closer to blissful joy. We don't really have the words to describe the Greek that Jesus was trying to convey The kingdom speaks into this situation of those who are in need of mercy. Twice tonight, we're going to use the translation of the message Bible, once here and once in the Old Testament. I don't do that every week, but I do when I feel like Eugene Peterson really captured something, and I think he did in the Beatitudes. I encourage you to go look at the message, all of the Beatitudes. In fact, go read the whole Sermon on the Mount in the message. Pretty fascinating. But look at 5-7 in the message Bible. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Good job, Mr. Peterson. That is an amazing little statement. And what a good way to articulate blessed are the merciful is that you are caring. You are full of care for the world around you. And when you are full of care for the world around you, you find that the world around you treats you with care. And that leads me to one of the biggest thoughts of the night in regards to a screen, something that I write down and try to convey to you. Most everything else tonight is text and we're going to work through them and talk them out. But I want you to get your minds back to how the Beatitudes work and why they exist. And then I want to drop merciful into the middle of that thought process. So we start here. The Beatitudes describe people on the margins those who have been left behind, you could say that which is to the edge, poor, mourning, needing mercy, needing comfort. They're not at the high end of the hierarchy. The Beatitudes opens with them. They are a list of kingdom ingredients. They really are the people God's going to promote. What Jesus will say is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those who have been last forever get to be first in the kingdom. That leads us to a bit of a conundrum. Blessed are the merciful sounds like a statement of reciprocity where you're only going to get mercy. If you give it sort of like God saying to you, I'll only be merciful to you. If I find out you've been merciful to others, which doesn't sound a whole lot like new covenant theology. So do we just move on and not wrestle that out? I don't think that's the best way to handle anything. Consider a world where everyone shows mercy and then ask yourself, what would you find in the time of needs? Let me start there. Consider a world where everyone is merciful. What would happen to you when you needed mercy? Well, that's obvious. If everyone was merciful and I needed mercy, then everybody would be merciful to me. So the kingdom principle is, here's what it looks like in the kingdom. You are merciful. Therefore, everywhere you turn, people are merciful to you because you have a world that's been created around mercy. But shrink that world down because it's easy to talk about these big broad statements. What would the world be like? I don't know but doesn't really matter we're not it's not like we can get there but we can shrink it down to our world like how i treat you and how you treat me and if we shrink that down to our immediate vicinity imagine that you have created a world where you've never shown mercy to anyone okay if you shrink it down to your circle and you haven't been merciful how merciful do you think that little world you've created is going to be to you in return call it reciprocity all you want It's the ingredients of the world you create. And so if you've created a space in which you are judgmental or cold or distant or harsh or hateful or unloving or unkind and everyone you come in contact with gets that from you, that's the response they get cold, hateful, harsh, unkind. What are the odds that some of that's going to come back to you inside of that circle? Well, you don't need to be a genius to figure out that that's kind of how your world works. That if you don't give mercy, don't ask for much of it in return because you know, as well as I do, that it's, it's going to be hard to come by when we're talking about, cause when we're talking about Beatitudes, we're talking about interpersonal, right? Us, you and me to each other, the merciful God we're going to get to the Bible's replete with it. But in our situation, now I, I say this because I'm like a lot of you, I came up in the church. I also came up in a time of great scandal in a lot of the famous church world. And we all live through those. Um, fortunately, there's at least a couple people in this room who haven't come up in a church environment in which they scandal sort of defines a big chunk of their Christianity. But for a lot of us, it does. And everybody's sort of got their story, I'm sure. Um, I can't tell your story and I'm not gonna tell all of mine, but I will say that I came up in, around ministers and ministries who oftentimes had no mercy on anyone. They were cold and distant and judgmental and harsh and cocky. And that was called the anointing. And that was called the power of God. And they believed that they had a God-given right to act that way because they were more talented than the other people. And they had platforms and they had figured something out. And then when every single one of them fell, because every single one of us do, <laughs> I said us. So I don't want to be finger-pointing. like That's what happens to them. Nah, that's what happens to us is that we screw this up. And so when they fell, the fall was hard. Part of it was hard because they had built big towers unto themselves. When Babel comes down, it crushes everything at the bottom. That's confusion galore. But The other part of the fall was hard because on the way up the tower, they stepped on everybody they could find. They crushed every ministry. They crushed every doctrine they disagreed with. They were hard on people that didn't live like them, love like them, look like them, act like them, sing like them, preach like them, believe like them. And so then when they needed mercy, amazingly enough, the world they had created, there just wasn't much mercy to go around. And I watched the crushing back and forth of Christianity for a big chunk of my life. Watching people who didn't know how to display mercy seemed stunned when there was none given to them when they fell. And that didn't cause them in some cases to go in some cases, there's always exceptions, but for the most part, unfortunately, it didn't cause those who fell to humble themselves and realize maybe I should love people better or treat people differently. Instead, in many cases they just doubled down and believed that the reason why nobody forgave him was because everyone was influenced by the devil and the enemy was out to get them and stop their ministry. And Jesus told us 2000 years ago what it was. Blessed are the merciful for they shall find mercy. Create a world where you give mercy and don't be surprised when it's given back to you. What's the opposite of that? Create a world with no mercy and don't act shocked and blame it on the devil when there's no mercy coming your way because the day is going to come when you will need it. And let's hope it's not a big deal. Let's hope it's not on the world stage. Let's hope it doesn't ruin your marriage and ruin your money and ruin your mind and ruin your body. Let's hope it's small potatoes, little bitty chaos and you need a little bit of mercy and it'll go a long way. Praise God, you can start over. But it might be the opposite of that. And it sure would be nice if on the way up, you had loved some people and not judged everyone, given people the benefit of the doubt, opened your ear and closed your mouth so that when you needed ears open and arms wide, there's a few people standing there that'll take you in. This is an important moment in our Christian development because our excitement and our zeal at hearing from God and seeing something in the text can go one of two ways. It can take us into this area where we feel like we've got something figured out. We're smarter than everybody else. We're climbing the right ladder and everyone else is wrong. Or it can take us into an area of humility and an understanding that we've figured one thing out only to learn that there's nine other things we don't know yet and that The things we don't know might be of greater importance than what we think we know. And if we could figure that out, we might love people a little differently. Jesus gave an interesting example in one of his texts. I didn't include this text tonight because this actually just hit me. Um, Jesus gave an example in the Gospels. He said, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. And he said that on the backside of a weird story where he tells a story about a guy who gets fired at his job And on his way out the door, he goes to all of his master's creditors and he gets them to pay what they can instead of what they owe. And he brings that total back to his master and says, hey, it's better that I got you something than nothing. And then every person in his life who he discounted takes him in after he gets fired. And Jesus said, the children of darkness are smarter in their generation than the children of light. That used to bug me. It was a story from Jesus I thought was sort of off the wall. Like, what's this got to do with the gospel? Until I stumbled across stuff like the Beatitudes. And I realized that the principle works. And what Jesus is saying is, is there's some people that have figured this out. That if they would open their hearts up to people on the outside, someday they will be on the outside in need of an open door. But for some reason, my children don't always remember that and so um, you do with that what you will i didn't wrestle that out too long Um, that that crossed my mind is probably worth kicking that on down the road a little ways or or kicking it out for for what that's worth but it is worth thinking about Um, let me take you to let's start connecting some dots okay psalms 145 i want to read nine verses i know it sounds like a lot but it's they're easy they flow well this is one of the most famous and beautiful songs from the hebrew songbook Psalms 145, and I wanna read the first nine verses from the New King James. I wanna talk about it just a little bit, and then we're gonna reread it in the message. So I know nine verses turns into 18 doing it that way. Um, Again, from here on out, it's text. And we connect some dots with text, try to see what we think the Bible might be saying about mercy. Here's an Old Testament song on the mercy of God. I will extol you, my God, O King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable, unbounded, unfathomable. For one generation shall praise your works to another generation and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. Watch this. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness. They shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. That eighth verse gives us the four qualities that the Hebrews saw of God that are best exemplified in Jesus, might be better exemplified in Christ, describing one verse from the Old Testament than any verse in the Old Testament. And there's some good ones. But you, you, can't, you can go a long way and won't do better than Psalms 145.8. You could say Jesus, Jesus is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. So when you watched that Jesus on the earth, you did have a template for it. It wasn't as if you're going, who's this guy? He's in there. The Lord is good. I love this next phrase. The Lord is good. I like to say this to whom? Well, the answer's right in front of us, but it's hard to fathom. The Lord is good to all. Oh, well, the Lord is good. If we love an if the Lord is good when, but it's not it's the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all of his works. So the mercy of God is a descriptor of God. The mercy of God is a noun and a verb. It is God full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. It's who he is and his tender mercies are over all his works. So he is both mercy and merciful. He is the embodiment of mercy and he moves through mercy. Who is he good to? All. There are no disqualified people for the goodness of God. Please remember that. That way you will recognize that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. You will recognize that his mercy is good Even when things don't go well, God is not good because things go well. God is good. Even when things go terribly, God is good in that he doesn't abandon you in the terrible. He doesn't say to you, come out the other side of your valley of the shadow of death. I'll see you when you get some stuff figured out. No, I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I try to be very careful. I love to say God is good. I say it all the time on every little thing that happens in my life. But every now and then I get a little check in my spirit um, because it's easier to say it when stuff works. So like something will go well and I'll go, God is good. And every now and then I'll hear the Holy Spirit say, I want you to say that one day when there's chaos. And I want you to notice the power behind it when there's chaos. Because it's like a reflex when things are good stuff goes well, you go, God is good. You can say it with a smile on your face. What about when hell breaks out in your circle? And then you say, God is good. Because if not, then God is only good when things go well. And that's not the case at all. God is good all the time. His mercy endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. God is good to all and his tender mercies are over everything he touches. And so maybe instead of looking at your chaos and being slow to get to God is good, you should realize that if there's chaos, God's hand has to be in it because he can't abandon you. And therefore, you have no idea how bad it would be without him. You think it's bad. Imagine that it is void of God. Imagine that it is outer darkness. We can't. We shouldn't. Because why would we? There is no outer darkness for us. Same text in the message, just because I like it. I lift you high and praise my God, O my King, and I'll bless your name into eternity. I bless you every day, and I keep it up from now to eternity. God is magnificent. What a word. He can never be praised enough. There are no boundaries to his greatness. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts this is why another reason why it is so important to spread the word generation to generation of what we have learned of Jesus generation after generation tells his story five your beauty and splendor have everyone talking I compose songs on your wonders your marvelous doings are headline news I could write a book full of the details of your greatness the fame this this is good The fame of your goodness spreads across the country. Your righteousness is on everyone's lips. God is all mercy and grace, not quick to anger, rich in love. God is good to one and all. Everything he does is suffused with grace. What a chapter. This is what they sang when they walked into the the places of God. This was one of their songs, and there's no greater visual, colorful, rainbow-like description of who Jesus is. This is the Hebrew idea of the mercy of God. So when you hear Jesus say, blessed are the merciful, this is the kind of stuff they would've thought about. Because that's what mercy sounds like. What if we could be that people? Now, sometimes based on context, dependent upon context, mercy can have a uh, a, a, a translation or not, that's not the right word. Mercy can have a connotation that tilts other ways. Whereas the, the Hebrew word has is good or goodness or merciful. Uh, it can also be fidelity or faithfulness. And that's not shocking because fidelity and faithfulness is good. Fidelity and, fidelity and faithfulness can't be evil. Therefore, if God is merciful, he is by default good. And if he is good, he is by default faithful and he doesn't cheat on us. And when we dealt with the marriage passage from the Sermon on the Mount, a little deeper in five, we talked about that a few weeks ago and we've been doing this stuff out of order. So this kind of works. But when you get into that passage and you, and we, we got into that whole week on marriage as defined by God, some of the things that we dealt with was how Israel had cheated on God, the adulterous ways of Israel. There's a book on that in the Old Testament that is one of the most interesting little books in the canon of Scripture. And that's the book of Hosea, where God tells his prophet to go marry a prostitute. And he tells Hosea, he says, I want you to marry her and she's going to be unfaithful to you. But I want you to marry her anyway and I want you to love her. She's going to be unfaithful and I want you to let her go. And then she's going to come back and I want you to take her back. Don't divorce her and Hosea turns into quite a little, I mean, that's already a pretty interesting plot. I mean, if you, you know, if the plot of your story was God told me to marry a prostitute, she's going to cheat like crazy, but I'm supposed to stay with her and then love her into being the wife she's destined to be, you go, well, this is, that's a wild story. That's Hosea. And he is faithful in his call and he's doing this as a type. This is the, the ultimate illustrated sermon uh he's playing the long game and you got to you got to stay with this for a few years for this illustration to work and he does and in that illustration he says basically Israel you've cheated on God and you've ran around as if you are a prostitute and you've sold yourself out to strange gods and literally Ephraim and Judah you have been idolatrous and adulterous so you have served other gods and you have in effect given yourselves intimately to those other gods, both idolatry and adultery. So that's bad enough. I mean, that book is pretty dark. But then you get a merciful moment in Hosea chapter six. Look at four, five, and six. And there's our cheaters, our adulterers and idolaters. Oh Ephraim, what shall I do to you? Judah, what shall I do to you? Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, like the early dew, it goes away. How faithful are you? Like morning fog, morning fog doesn't last very long. Thus the adjective morning, and it is flimsy and it doesn't bring much. And then it's gone and it doesn't come back around till the next day. And this is like the ultimate sort of backhanded insult to the way Ephraim and Judah have treated God maritally. Your faithfulness to me isn't very faithful at all. Verse five, therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets and slain them by the words of my mouth. Your judgments are like light that goes forth. I want to, I want to show you something in five. I, I stopped today as I was working through this and praying through it and just kind of letting the words go over in my head. And I was struck in this chapter by how much this moment in Hosea six is the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth and revelation because the judgment that falls on the cheater, the idolater and the adulterer of Hosea is hewn by the prophets. Prophets are mouthpieces. In other words, they preach God's word to Ephraim and Judah, which means that if I chopped them up, I did it through the mouth of ministry, and then I slain them by the words of, once again, my mouth. God doesn't bring foreign armies. God doesn't bring the sword in his hand. God speaks over them. And I kind of think that the word that, that I was, I I didn't know what to do with that. Like I like the imagery, the, the sword out of your mouth imagery of Jesus goes, if you're gonna win, you're gonna win by the word, the logos, you're not gonna win through the systems of men, violence. But how does that look for cheaters, like Ephraim and Judah? And then you see that last line, your judgments are like light that goes forth. That's the judgment on you from God through the mouth of the prophets and the mouth of his word. The sword that comes out of God's mouth spreads a light into the life of the adulterer idolaterer. Your judgments are like light tells me that what God is doing over the adultery and the idolatry of Judah and Ephraim is not crush them with his hand, but speak light into who they are, even though they're cheaters. So here's God with this People cheating on their covenant with him, sleeping with strange gods, and God says, my judgment over you is light, and it's, and he doesn't use this for language, because he can't. We aren't to Revelation yet, but you could say it this way. My judgment over you is the sword out of my mouth. I speak into you exactly what it is you need. And what is it that he speaks? Six, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So you've been coming to me with your offerings and with your sacrifices, but what I really want out of our relationship is mercy, and I want you to know me. I don't want you to work for me. I don't want you to do stuff for me. I want you to know me. And I want mercy to define what we are together. I am being merciful to you in a judgment-like light. This is quite a response to a cheating bride. Is to say, I speak over you words of light. When you get to John, it goes, the light is the life. So if I speak light, I'm speaking life. I'd rather have mercy than sacrifice. Don't prove your worth to me by what you can offer. That's sacrifice. Don't prove to me by your burnt offerings. That's what you pay. That's what you bring to the table. He said, instead, have the knowledge of my mercy towards you. Now, take that thought process. And let's squeeze that into the life of Jesus because of all of the scriptures that Jesus quotes in the old Testament, he rarely quotes the same one twice. Like he'll quote a verse from Deuteronomy. He'll quote something from the Leviticus. He'll quote a Psalm, but it's not like Jesus seemed, We don't have him in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John running around saying the same verse. I mean, he's original. He, he brings something to the table from the Holy spirit. that's fresh for every crowd. And yet in the book of Matthew, we have Jesus quoting the same verse twice in two different chapters. And it's both in this very, very similar context, which tells us a couple of things. One, he was really into that verse and two, they weren't which is why he had to repeat it. And so what is that verse? Well, look at this story from Matthew chapter nine, beginning in verse nine, Jesus passed on from there and saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and said to him, follow me. So Matthew rose and followed him. And it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples look at 10 stay there for just a second now it happened you bet because this is this is it now it happened this is matthew remembering back to go i can remember the moment i'll tell you how it happened when he this is the writer and there he is in verse nine. This is Matthew's conversion. Because let me tell you what happened the day I got saved. Let me tell you what happened the day I started following Jesus. I come, I'm a tax collector and all of my buddies came in because if Jesus could take me, maybe he could take all of them too. And I ran with a bunch of rabble rousers. We were a bunch of thieves. This is not the kind of group you build a church out of. Unless you're Jesus. He sits at the table. A lot of tax, look at this, tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And Jesus doesn't freak out. Instead he understands, hey, why wouldn't they feel comfortable coming to me? This isn't gonna go over real well outside the house. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can insert anything you want right there in today's vernacular. Why does your church allow this person and that person why does your church allow them and them and them? Why do you guys eat with them? Why do you act like they're your equals? Why don't you kick them out? Why don't you tell them they need to do this, do that? Insert whatever you want right here, because this is scandalous, okay? So Jesus is asked, why, the, the disciples are asked, why, do you, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard it and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see this quote, Mark? Right here, boom, boom. Jesus quoting Bible. What's he quoting? Hosea chapter six, verse six. We just read it, where Hosea said, "Hey Judah, hey Ephraim, what are you doing? I'm gonna judge you with the word of my mouth. My is like light. You know what I really desire? Mercy, not sacrifice." Jesus quotes Hosea six six. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but I call sinners to repentance. Here's a really good idea. Be the sick in need of a physician as you live this out. Because if you will be the sick in need of a physician, where do you get to eat? I don't don't know, man. I get the identity thing and I get I'm this and I'm not that and I'm the head and I'm not the tail and I'm top and I'm not the bottom. But Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The sick don't have a need of the the well don't have a need of a physician. I think the church is better served if she's full of sick people. Mm -hmm. We're just we're better people. I don't mean we go out and 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 do the negative Paul confronted that and he's like why would you go do sin so you get grace He goes, that's a stupid Paul basically calls that stupid he goes that's a stupid philosophy I'm gonna go sin more so I can get more grace why would you have to do that you already had plenty of sin when you met grace it's not like you had to go stack some more on it so you can get more grace just admit what you already are and you realize what you need and so Jesus response is What does it mean? Go learn what it means. You guys don't know what it means. I prefer mercy and not sacrifice. Okay. Matthew 12, three chapters later. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. Oh, here we go again. Verse three, and he said, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Time out. Jesus is quoting a story from the, from the book of Samuel where David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul's trying to kill David because David has been anointed to be the next king and Saul doesn't want David to be the next king. Saul wants to be the king and he wants his son, Jonathan, to be the next king. And so David is on the run from a murderous king and he's starving. And so one day he stops off in the tabernacle and he eats from the showbread table that's in the holy place of the tabernacle, which is not to be done by anyone except the priest. And David chomps down on it because he's starving and he moves on. And Jesus says he entered in and he ate the showbread and it wasn't lawful for him to do that. How do you get by with that? Can you imagine Jesus turning this table on them? No one's ever asked this question, at least. I'm sure maybe he had wrestled it out with someone else, but we don't see the Old Testament haggling over this moment. He goes, this is interesting. He was able to eat the showbread. He's not lawfully supposed to eat the showbread. But he did. Now, Jesus doesn't stop. He decides to use another illustration. Did you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and they're blameless? What's that mean? Well, because in the law, the priest was actually working on the Sabbath day because he offered the Sabbath sacrifices, which meant in a nation where people don't work, the highest end of the spiritual hierarchy was working all day long. I remember growing up in the church and people go, Oh, these people out here working on Sunday and the pastor gets a paycheck. I mean, he's working on Sunday. And by the way, every one of them would go to a restaurant and get waited on after church on Sunday by the very people they had just demonized during church. It shouldn't be working on Sunday. And then those sanctimonious people wouldn't leave a tip because they were all so cranky when they got out of church and gave every dime they had there. They didn't have anything left to bless somebody with. Yeah, you can tell I get a little bit on a soapbox when it comes to uh, that whole Sabbath day argument. But didn't you read in the law that the priest profaned the Sabbath? These guys are blameless. I say to you that in this place there's one greater than the temple. If you had known what it means, here we go, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilt. He quotes the same verse. Three chapters ago he told him to go figure out what it means. What did they not do? (laughs) That's why three chapters later he goes, if you had figured it out, you wouldn't be jumping me for my disciples eating on the Sabbath because what would you have learned? Not God desires people to just do whatever they want to. No, God desires an experience of relationship with us where we taste and see that God is good and that that's more important to us than the, the laws and the rules and the sacrifices and the burnt offerings and the Sabbath days and the feast days. And whatever else it is that religion stacks up, it's more important to us to see that God is good than to see that we are good for God. That was Jesus point. It's also a pretty good point that what is right is not always what is good and what is wrong is not always evil. It was wrong by law for David to eat the showbread, but it would have been evil for David to die of starvation with fresh bread. They put that bread out there every morning. The smell of that bread is in David's nostrils. It's what turns him into the tabernacle. Would it have been good for him to have starved to death while trying to be good for God? That was Jesus' point. He goes, look, I can make you happy by not eating with publicans and sinners. I can be good. Or I can eat with people that need me. So go figure out what I should do. If you knew that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't ask me. Three chapters later, his disciples are hungry, plucking heads of corn on the Sabbath day. Jesus goes through this whole speech. He goes, if you guys had figured that out, you wouldn't be mad at my disciples. You obviously haven't figured it out. Here's the deal. We still haven't figured it out. We still struggle with this. Jesus doesn't quote the same scripture twice very often, but he does here. Because I think he's still quoting it to all of us going, don't you know, I'd rather have mercy than sacrifice. That's how important that this is. Let me give you a couple more. This one from deep in your New Testament. This is from the book of James, and I will not, I'm not going to stay here very long because I, I, feel, I feel compelled to move, um, to head into this last portion, but I don't want to skip this. This is an important point from the New Testament writer. James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll do well. The word royal there is translated the same word as the word kingdom. So James is really giving us a real kingdom insight. If you want to fulfill everything the kingdom says, then love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that's the Sermon on the Mount. That's in miniature. Because you know what the kingdom looks like? love your neighbor as yourself. Then you would do well. But if you show partiality in your love, then you commit a sin and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Because whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. This is a powerful point in the New Testament philosophy of Christianity. And that is that if you are going to take your right standing through the law, then you are guilty in every breach of the law. So you can't say I did nine out of 10 well. If your righteousness is in doing well, then your unrighteousness happens when you don't do well. And James says, to fulfill the actual kingdom law would be to love your neighbor as yourself. He, go, he says, but, If you're determining your value, we're gonna see this as the context rolls. If you're determining your value through that keeping of the law, and you stumbled in one point, you would be guilty of the whole thing. Here's an illustration. Do not commit adultery. The same word also says, do not murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, then you've become a transgressor of the law. Simple. He picks two big ones, by the way, but pretty bold ones, ones that are obvious. Like you didn't maybe murder, you know, there's no ambiguity to murder or adultery. You did or you didn't. So James goes, if you did one, by default, you did both. In fact, you broke them all because you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak as do those who will be judged, not by the law of Moses, but speak and live as if you would be judged by the law of liberty. Because if you speak and live as if you're judged by the law of Moses, good luck. You break one, you broke them all. And if you break one and you broke them all, then you're gonna get judged as if you broke them all. His illustration was you you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you're gonna be judged as if you both committed murder and committed adultery. And so pick how you'd like to be judged, all right? So if you pick how you'd like to be judged, of course, we know that in Christ, we're in the law of the kingdom. And that leads into this phrase. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then the best verse in the book of James, in my opinion, best sentence, mercy triumphs over judgment. Memorize that one. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is greater than judgment. Would you rather God judge you? for being guilty of one point in the law, or would you rather the mercy of the law of the kingdom be on your side? James says choose. And so if you're gonna choose, and you know what you're gonna choose, well then love your neighbor that way and choose that for them. Be merciful, not full of judgment. Sounds easy, right? Well, we know better, because judgment's so much fun. Sometimes I need to ask myself why it's so much fun. What am I hoping to make up for in my own self with my judging of my neighbor? Uh, that's a pretty good point of wrestling. Here's probably the old Testament's most famous moment in regards to what it looks. This is odd for me to say this. And let me, let me slow down and say it right. When you think about being a Christian, you think new Testament verses. Okay. I'm going to show you an old Testament one. That's probably the most famous verse in the old Testament about being a Christian. And I know it wasn't written to Christians, but this was the most prescient verse in regards to what the new covenant would do to us. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? So whatever he requires of you must be good, right? God's good. What's he want you to do? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Three things. This looks like the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, do just, love mercy, walk humbly. Keep those in mind. Do justice, love mercy, walk with a low heart. Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's Micah 6, 8. Boom, boom, boom. In the Sermon on the Mount. In the middle of the Beatitudes. Jesus snuck the most salient verse of the goodness of God played out in the lives of God's people. He pulled it from Micah. He put new language around it and he stuck it in the prologue of his Sermon on the Mount. I know you didn't see the word justice there. It's the same word in the Greek, the word righteousness. We see, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and we call an altar service and go, get up here and get hungry for righteousness because it's way more palatable to our individual salvation mentality to say blessed are those of you who hunger for righteousness than it is to say blessed are people who hunger for the God's justice. And blessed are people who hunger for justice, they shall be filled with justice in the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. It's Micah 6.8 in miniature. Actually, it's Micah 6.8 played out in the kingdom. It's God saying, this is what looks good on God and looks good on his people is whenever you do justice, you're hungry for it. You want to see it on this list, lived out in the people of this world. You show mercy. Mercy comes back to you. And you're pure in heart. Only really in that place of true humility, that's pure in heart. Do we see God? Because if we're pure in heart, we see less of us. As we see less of us, we see more of him. So to me, pure in heart is this beautiful way of saying, as you start, as you move down the ladder of importance, you start to see God manifest in every area of your life. Like John the Baptist said when he announced the arrival of the ministry of Jesus, I must decrease. He must increase. Yeah. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they get to walk in the same mercy they send out. Now you can challenge the Lord with this and I encourage you to cause it'll work. Otherwise Jesus is a liar. Live your life full of mercy and watch mercy come back at you. Not because God's paying you back, but because people naturally will when you've opened your arms and your heart and your life to them, they will open their arms and their heart and their life to you. Sometimes they won't even realize they've done it. They just will. Because you gave them a reason to, but if you want to do this by yourself and you want to Lord, whatever you think, you know, over everyone you meet, don't show anyone any mercy. Give people what you think they deserve. Give it to them swiftly without mercy. And then get ready. Because when the thing comes down, and it always does, Jesus once again will be right. Here's the beauty. I haven't always, I I try to have this attitude to people. I certainly don't always have the attitude to my God. I'm Judah and I'm Ephraim. Sometimes, I think we all are. I create another alternate version and I'm not faithful to him. But the justice, the judgment of his word, his words speak light into my life. And he reminds me all over again, Paul, I don't want you to pay me back. I don't want your sacrifice this week. This isn't how we work. I just want you, just want you to know that I'm good, even when you're not. And if, if I get a real revelation of that, it makes it easier for me to be good to people that don't deserve it in my life. So this really works the other way. As well. As I receive His mercy, I find myself merciful. Where I don't receive His mercy, I find myself hard, harsh, hateful, judgmental, proud. These principles work because the kingdom works. Blessed are the merciful. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. Thank you for the word, and it works. Thank you for the excitement. And watching it work. Thank you for this time that we've had with our friends and both in this room and those who join us later. I think what we're doing God is we're leaving yes with a bunch of questions but we're at least leaving with the peace in our heart that you are so radically good that even in the areas that we don't understand all of this stuff we know that if we can be a reflection of your goodness in the world then we create a space. We create a world that is a new creation. Help us with that. Teach us what that looks like. We thank you. We praise you. We pray for these Lord, whose names are on our prayer list. And we ask your help this week to remember them as we come before you in Jesus name. Amen.